0: Good morning, everyone. This morning we're continuing in our study of Jesus' role as priest. And while we could take a very long time in this area, I don't think we need to. Because what we're not going to do is talk about the many, many times Jesus uses terminology in the Gospels that have to do with his priesthood. Any time he talked about laying down his life, that's a priestly function of the sacrificial system. Any time he talked about death, that's the activity of what happens to the sacrificial animal. Any time he talked about life, that's the result of the sacrificial system. Any time he talks about redemption, any time he talks about any of these kinds of subjects, and when you look at the Word, if, you're, if you will allow your eyes and your ears to be opened by the Spirit, you will see the Word of God in the words of Jesus peppered, peppered with terminology, priesthood, if you would, terminology. Because you see, the primary and the great work of Jesus on earth was to bring God's rulership, his kingship. Remember, Adam was to be a king. He was to have dominion and to rule. To bring God's kingdom into creation, Adam was to minister the word and to fill the earth with the presence of God. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And Adam also, though, was to do those other two things, he had to be God's representative or God's mediator. He had to mediate the things or the presence of God as a priest. And so the Holy Spirit gave Adam the responsibility in Genesis 2.15 of what? Work and keep. Guard and maintain the garden. And so all of the ability to bring about the purpose of God was through this great work of being a priest. Adam failed. You remember that. And so the Lord instituted the Levitical system, which we've talked about on a number of occasions, as a temporary system waiting for the one who would fulfill it in himself. And so Jesus, when he's speaking, uses all kinds of illustrations that give us the revelation that he is the high priest upon the earth who is going to redeem and bring back the purposes of God through his own self-sacrificing. And we see some of this in the seven I am statements. I am. And we went through, I think, several of those last week and we'll continue this morning. So this morning... Let's talk about the one in John 15, 1, where Jesus says, I am the vine. Actually, in the Hebrew, it says, um, in the Greek, it says, I am the vine, the true. So most of the translations would say, I am the true vine. Okay, fine. I am the vine. And then he says, the true, to accentuate and make sure we know that there are other vines around but don't be deceived by these other vines. I am the vine, the true, that vine which is of God. So that's what Jesus says about himself. Now in Exodus 25, 31 to 36, remember, by the way, we've talked about the menorah, but I'm going to go back to the menorah. Remember last week we talked about the menorah was that lamp stem had the center stem and then the three stems coming out from each side. All of them decorated with almond bl- blossoms and so on. You remember some of that. And so in Exodus 25, 31 to 36, Moses is given the instruction for the creation or the construction of the menorah. And here's what the Lord says. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold, base and shaft. Its flower-like cups, buds buds, and blossoms shall be of one piece with it. Now, Underline that. Did did your word have it? One piece with it. One piece. That's important because it has to do with the word or the concept of unity or unify. One piece with it. Verse 32. And there shall be six branches. Look at that. Six branches. Going out of its sides. Three cups made in verse 33 like almond blossoms on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms on the other branch. So each of the branches have these blossoms or these flowers, if you would. Number, verse 36 a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. So all of this is one, one piece. It was made of a single piece of hammered work of gold with one central shaft, one main branch coming out, you see, of the base. And so it was one main branch, and it had branches coming off the side of it. Remember, we talked about some of this last week. And on each side, each of these branches were, what, adorned with blossoms. So you remember, or at least You get the idea of what it looks like. This is the menorah. This is the light that was in the holy place, the light of the holy place, the only light that was actually inside of the tabernacle building itself. And the light, you remember, shone on the bread of the presence. And it has to do with the light of God's presence shining on his people. That perpetual fellowshipping of us in the light of the presence of God. That's what that's all about. Now, remember in John 15, 5, Jesus says this. He uses menorah-like terminology to describe his relationship with his disciples. So, remember the menorah. It's one big stem with three branches on each side. One main branch with three branches on each side. And so, Jesus said this. I am the vine and you are the branches. So, what is a vine? the vine is the main stem the vine is the main shaft if you would you i am the vine and you are the branches so what is a branch in that context that's which comes out of the main stem so you see he's beginning to describe the relationship and the function of the church within the context of being unified or being made one with Christ i am the main stem Remember the menorah, I am the main stem, and you are the branches which come out from me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So what do you see there? What is he saying? Remember in Matthew 5, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And then in verse 16, what does he say to the church or to the disciples? You are what? The light of the world. You are light, and you are salt. And so, you see in the menorah, you see the main stem, which is the construction or the whole edifice is based in that main stem. This is the source of all the other light. And so, you have that light. But once the other three are attached and begin to be one with it, then the light can go to these other three, or these other six, rather, three on each side. And then all of a sudden, the branches become light. And so you get that double issue there, the light of God shining on the bread and we also being the light of God shining to the world. So we are the menorah, if you would, Christ in us, the light, but using us as lights to the world. And what does that produce it produces much fruit what is decorated on the cups remember the branch would come out and it would have a little cup at the top and it would be decorated as an almond blossom what is an almond blossom it's fruit it's fruit and so Jesus says when you abide in me you're going to bear much fruit and so what is he saying here his priestly robe produces in us the fruit of abiding in him the fruit of light the fruit of producing the glory of God, or manifesting, if you would, the glory of God. And how does this occur? He brings it about by Himself being the sacrificial lamb. So, Jesus identifies Himself with the menorah's main stem from which come the other branches. Listen to this in Ephesians 1, 11. The Bible says, in Him. Now, remember what it said. This is one piece. The menorah is one piece, unity inside. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So the menorah shows the unification of the church in Christ, producing through the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the light of the world. The branches of the menorah are decorated with almond branches, signifying the fruit of the Spirit, being connected to the stem. Where do we see anything about the fruit of the Spirit? Where does Paul talk about the fruit of the Spirit? Remember what? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? The word kapos is actually a singular word. What is the fruit of the Spirit? What is that essential fruit, that essential work That essential revelation, that essential activity that God wants us to display, which is proof of his triune nature. How do we as believers prove to the world that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Maybe by saying something about it, but how do we prove that? Where is the proof that God is triune? Where is the proof of that? What is the proof of that in our lives? What proves it? Love proves it. Love. Will you say, what do you mean love? Well, you remember what we said. People say that Allah and God of the Bible are the same. It's just different name. <clears throat> well, that's a bunch of boulder dash. It's wrong. Don't you ever fall for that lie. Allah is a single person being, supposedly. (coughs) He's a single person. And can a single person being demonstrate love? Yes or no? No. Why? Because love requires one who gives love to another and one who receives love to reciprocate and return it. So in order to be loving, in order to have love as a real activity there must be at least what? Two. And here's the singular definitive proof That God is a triune being. He is a God of love, demonstrating within himself the love of the Father for the Son and for the Holy Spirit and all that reciprocal love activity among the three persons of the Trinity. What is love? Love is that activity of fellowship that exists in God among the persons of God. That is love. That's where we get the definition and where we realize and experience the function of love. That's love. And that love has been clearly and demonstratively and powerfully demonstrated to us where? In the cross of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so how is that love? trinitarian nature of God to be demonstrated among us. That we what? Love one another. And so when Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, there's the essence of it. Well, then what he does there in Galatians 5.22, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the essence of the proof and the manifestation of the reality that God is in me. Well, then what is the experience of love? Joy. You see, Paul has set forth by the Spirit a diamond with eight facets. The diamond of God is love. There it is. Now, let me give you the way to make sure that we understand that this is a true diamond. The experience of love is what? Joy. The effect of love is peace. And the expression of love, what is it? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness. Remember, and the end one is self-control. That's the experience. That's how we know whether we're in Christ. That's how others will know whether God is a triune God. And that's why it is so critically significant to be loving one another. And that's why it's so dastardly dangerous to not love one another. Because the essence of God's character is a holy, pure, consuming love from one person of the Trinity to another person of the Trinity. Through the roles that each one of them carry out within the Godhead. Amen? So that's what love is so important. So the fruit of the Spirit is love. What is the experience of love? Joy. What is the effect of love? Peace. And what is the expression of love? The rest of them. Now, how many of you know, have realized, and have experienced this, that when things are going wrong in your life, Peace is not experienced at that moment in joy. You know, you're not you're not feeling settled and joyful. How many of us have, when we've had that to happen, and all of us have, when our peace and joy are attacked by the issues of the world, by the temptations of the enemy, and by our submitting to those temptations, when our peace and joy are attacked, have we found out that it is difficult to be patient with people? To be kind. I'm, come on, come on. Anybody in here? Have you ever wondered, why, why, why? I'm going to try to be what? How, how, to be faithful. To be self-controlled. To be gentle. To express love. Because you see, those seven Sorry, those six depend upon the first two as their reality and ability to be expressed. So when you're impatient, when you're unkind, when you're not self-controlled, whatever, ask the Holy Spirit, what is affecting my peace and joy? Deal with the base of what's wrong. It's your peace and joy that are being attacked which have caused the expression not to be functioning in particular areas as it should be functioning. Angry, resentful, unforgiving. All of this has to do with something is not functioning correctly with my joy and with my peace because if I am experiencing the joy of God, the peace of God things can go wrong all around me and I won't be you know it's not I'm not happy about it but I in myself will not be assaulted and my expression of love can still function correctly amen so let's make sure we get that I just took that as aside it's not even in the notes or whatever and sometimes you know when there's an aside like that it's probably that I needed to hear it again, and maybe someone else did. So, now Jesus says, "I am the branch; you are the vines." I mean, I you are the I am the vine; you are the branches. You know, you're in me; you will abide; you will produce fruit Galatians 5:22 and 23. Now, but let's look at something of the Old Testament use of the word branch, because the word branch is very significant in the Old Testament. Let me read to you a couple of verses from the Old Testament concerning this terminology of branch. There shall come, Isaiah 11, 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. How many of you have seen a tree stump where a shoot comes up, comes on up, and begins to grow? You know? You, you know what this is. From the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. So, first of all, we have a, a prophecy that a branch, will be a person. Jesse is a real person. Who is Jesse? How many of you know who Jesse is, if I were to ask you? How many of you are not sure who Jesse is? Come on, you can raise your hands. Okay. Jesse is the father of King David. David is the progenitor or the ancestor of Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah is saying here, someone's coming from the house of Jesse, who will be the one who will bear fruit. What fruit? The fruit of the presence and power and work and effectiveness of God's love as a demonstration that God is this great triune being to bring his people back into fellowship. He's going to produce that fruit, this one who is called the branch. Look at uh, Jeremiah 23, 5 to 7. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he, see we're talking about a person and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land in his days judah will be saved judah is a byword again for the house of god the house of god's people and israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which he will be called the lord is our righteousness so there is a branch who is coming one who is called the branch Jeremiah 33, 15, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So repeating, Zechariah 6, 12, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So when Jesus says, you know, talks about himself as being the vine. He is using that terminology to refer to himself. He doesn't say on the branch because at that time with that particular thing, it's a vine, but he's referring to himself as the branch. And by the way, I'm not, I, I've heard this before. I've never looked it up and I've never verified it, although I did talk to a couple of people and they said it was correct, so I don't have any more verification than that. But the branch, the word Nazareth in Hebrew, as I understand, is very close to the word Nazareth. And the sound of the Hebrew word for branch. So he shall be called a Nazarene. Remember from Nazareth. So what? I think it has to do with he shall be called the branch. And so every time when these people said Jesus of Nazareth, they were saying Jesus the branch. And when they said that, it was another way of God saying, look, he's the one. He's the one. He's the one. God puts all of this These hints throughout his word. And here it is in this man, all of this collected and being fulfilled in this man. So when Jesus is sitting there, actually they're crossing the brook, and as he's going through the garden and you see these vine branches, you know, and these, uh, what do you call it? Um, um, Well, I suppose they're vine branches, whatever they are for uh, wine. What do you call these things? Grapes. Grapes. When he says, I am the branch, I am the vine. And you were the branches. You see how it's you see how all these things hang down and have a lot of grapes on them, but they're connected. That's who I am. And this stuff that hangs down, that's who you are. And you can imagine when he is saying that, they know these prophecies. They know these prophecies. He's, he's talking about what Zechariah said. He's talking about what Isaiah said in Jeremiah. I mean, do, do you think that this could be the branch? Is this the one who has been promised by God? You see, this wells up in them in a great great revelation of astounding majesty. As they know the word and as they understand, at least partially, the prophecies. And he says that I am those prophecies right in your living presence. This had to be an astounding, these kinds of things had to be astounding for these men as they heard it. Not for us so much because there's so much ignorance in the church today as to the Old Testament. But as we grow and grow, we can see more and more the richness and the power of what Jesus is saying and doing. So in each of these passages, the branch is personified. Jesus claimed that he is this branch. And his priestly ministry is going to bring about The production of fruit in his people as they are connected to him. Number five, I am the resurrection and the life. And by the way, you see, I did not carry it in the same order. I wanted to finish with this one. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You remember the context of that? Where is that found in John what? 11. In the beginning of John 11, Jesus and his disciples or far, not too far away but a few days journey from Bethany and they're around the bonfire eating, talking, sharing and into the company comes who? A servant and what does he say? Jesus, I've come from the house of Martha and Mary Lazarus is very ill and you need to come because it looks like he's going to die now why do they come to Jesus? Because they see, they have seen that Jesus has what? Raised the dead. Remember the widow's son, widow of Nain, whose son was dead and they were at the funeral, and he came up, touched the coffin, and everybody went, oh. Oh my goodness. Now you have to understand the clean and unclean laws of Leviticus to get that one. And everybody stopped. The procession stopped. And he raised him up. Your son and your friend, Lazarus, the man whom you love, he's dying. You need to come. And you know the story. So the disciples are assuming, and I've said this a hundred times, what are they assuming, Judy? We're going, let's pack up. And I, I, I bet that they started packing up. And they started getting ready, Lester. Getting this stuff ready, you know, putting out the fire, or whatever. And Jesus just sitting there. Okay, he's a little slow, but you know we'll give him that. And and they whatever, and all of a sudden they realize, wait, we're not going anywhere. And what happens? He stays. And then finally he says, oh, after a few days, he says, "What? Let's go down to Bethany." to see Lazarus. And then he says he's dead. Remember that? Well, why go? He's dead. And so when he finally gets to Bethany, the sister's seeing. Ah! Remember, Martha runs out, if only you had been here. But I know that God will give you what you pray for. Then Mary says the same thing. And Martha said, you know, I know that Jesus will rise. I'm sorry, I know that Lazarus, my brother, will rise on the last day. I am the resurrection and the life. See, Jesus cut her off. She's talking about something future. She's talking about an experience that way in the future. But you see, Jesus has purposefully delayed until the man is dead for four days three days being the critical time to prove that he's dead, four days. He's dead. The death certificate now is written out. He's dead. And as she is saying, I know that in the future, I know that there's coming a day, and that's true. But Jesus says, I who stand before you, I am that day. I am that future right here in your midst. Roll away the stone. What? Roll away the stone. Jesus said, we do that. Remember, he stinks. King James says, he stinketh. Roll away the stone. And you remember what happened. Jesus defiantly, defiantly walks up to the front of the tomb and looks into the blackness of the face of death. God's last enemy that shall be thrown into the lake of fire. Remember, you read it in Revelation 20. And as he sees this last enemy, he knows that when he raises Lazarus, that's a picture of what he will do with his people. But he also knows that when he raises Lazarus as a picture of what he will do for his people, (coughs) it will require his own death. And defiantly, Lazarus, come forth. And he shows what? Death has no power, no grip. And you remember when Jesus goes to the cross, his hands are outstretched. And at that moment, most vulnerable, The son of God looking at his most vulnerable. When your hands outstretched and nailed down or tied down, you vulnerable. you vulnerable. vulnerable. If you guys want to stretch your hands out, let me hit you in the stomach. Why? You you want to cover your, you know, you're vulnerable. And into the setting comes death. Finally. Finally, I have him. You see, death thought that when it got to Jesus, death would slay Jesus. But that's not what happened, is it? When death came right up to the face of Jesus, then in the spirit, death was going to grasp or clasp Jesus. Remember? Right? I got you. But when it got all the way up to the face of Jesus, what does the Bible said, And Jesus surrendered his own life. And he died. And in the decision to die, he grabbed death and down. He and death went into the bowels of the earth. And Jesus came back. And death's authority over God's people stayed in the bowels of the earth. You see, that's right. That's right. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, what he's doing there, the first or the other I am statements or activities that happen in the tabernacle and function in the sacrificial system as God's means of bringing his people into his presence. I am the resurrection and the life is the one that gives us the result of him being the priest. He is the resurrection and the life for us because he is the king of glory who is building his kingdom through his sacrificial He is the king of glory who was building his kingdom, prophet, through his own sacrificial death, the priest. He's functioning, remember, in these three roles. Each of the I am statement, I just said that. Jesus' resurrection was the continuation of the divine means of getting to the divine goal of Leviticus. It was the result, the great culminating result, rather, of the goal of Leviticus. I am the resurrection of life says this. All that has occurred in the Levitical legislation and that was required, I will complete it. He's saying this, remember, before he dies. I am the one who in myself and by myself will bring it all to completion in myself. And the goal of Leviticus, remember, the first 16 chapters, at least and specifically, were for bringing the people into access before the presence of God so God's purpose in creation and God's purpose for the Levitical legislation may be accomplished. What is that? Communion and fellowship with God. So Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life is saying, I am the one who in my priestly sacrificial death, I am the one who brings you in." and accomplishes God's goal that initiated in Genesis and is now being fulfilled in me so that in me, when I die, you will have the good and the fullness of what God's goal is in completion. Amen? That's what he's saying here. He's not just saying, hey, I'm coming back from the dead. Life, life, life is that quintessential revelation and activity It doesn't mean just breathing. It has to do with the life of God, life in God's presence, the life of God in his people. John 17, 3, for this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus' resurrection was God's affirmation that Jesus' death satisfied the full requirements of his holy justice, thus opening the way into the glory of his presence, where his people would enjoy the light of his presence forever. I'm not going to get this done today, am I? Man, Finally, in the resurrection, and I think I'll stop at this point. Finally, in the resurrection, listen to me. In the resurrection... That time when Jesus received his glorified body and the stone was rolled away by the angels and Jesus came forth. He didn't need to have it done that way. The stone was rolled away so we could go in there and see he wasn't there. The stone rolled away was for our purpose, not for his. And finally, there is a man upon the earth who is the exact image of his creator. He being the creator himself has now fulfilled his own creation mandate. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. He has himself fulfilled that. Finally, God the Father has a man on earth who is according to his will. A man who has fulfilled the great mandates of Genesis 1 26 through 28, the great mandates of prophet, priest, and king. This man in whom all three persons of the Trinity are clearly and continually and effectively and truthfully and consistently and everything else manifested. Perfectly manifested. The Trinity through these three mandates. Prophet, priest, and king through these three roles. You see, however, God's intention was that Jesus would only be the first of a new humanity. Someone said, well, God could have now stopped it. He could have stopped it. No. You see, God had purposed that he would have a people, not just a person, a people for his own inheritance. So Jesus is the first of a new race. A new humanity, a humanity that in itself will be the fulfillment of what he created humanity to be in the garden that Adam rejected through his sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. Jesus is the first of many to come. <clears throat> Finally, in the resurrection of Jesus, God has a people after his image who will be, remember, conformed to the image of his son, Romans eight twenty nine in order to be fruitful and fill the earth with his image as they fill their triune mandates. Finally, finally the purpose of god has been fulfilled and now will be progressively fulfilled as the holy spirit after jesus ascension he's crowned king of kings and he ascends and he sits at the right hand of the father remember that how do we know that all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me matthew what 2818 having raised ascended into heaven Then he sends the Holy Spirit, wait 10 days, he sends the promise of the Father, the great prophet of God who will come and who will build the kingdom of God that was established in the blood of Christ, that was purchased through the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit will begin to build that, we see that on the day of Pentecost. We today are the continuation, we today are the very ones in whom, for whom Christ has died and we were in him when he died and we are as much a part of that work of god as any other man, as any other generation and what is our call our call is to be living images of god not images of the world the church today is too much the image of the world when the world changes its mind about a thing the church follows when the world changes its dress code the church follows when the world says this is good the church follows when the world says bump 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 the church goes bump, bump bump isn't that right we are not being the image of god the way god wants us to we are to be if you would in that kind of a context anti-world Our image is to be so different that it reflects the wrongness of the world. So let us be a people who continue continue to pray, Father, purify me as an image bearer. Show me where I'm not being an image bearer. Cleanse me. Conform me. Strengthen me. Show me the areas, and I hopefully will repent of them. You see, because the world says, walk this way. And the church begins to walk this way. Amen? We've seen it. It's in this church. It's happening. It's not what God wants. The Son of God died, so we would be very different from this. Be praying about the sermon this morning. It's a, what do you call it, Palm Sunday communion sermon. Thank you so much. See you next week.